0: to turn for our reading this evening to uh, the letter of James. I'm going to read uh, chapter one. The letter of James, chapter one. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is always a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not protect the righteousness of God. Sorry, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word this one will be blessed in what he does. If any anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Amen. May God add his own blessing to that reading of his own inspired words. What a challenging word that is indeed. Well, really, just to lead into our subject this evening just refer back to those verses there let no man say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be, de- be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone so that clears the ground God does not tempted uh, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed then when desire is conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown it brings forth death now you will remember I'm sure that the theme of uh, current studies uh, is to consider Satan's desire to overthrow to attack to bring down and undermine uh, God's purposes and ultimately his design is to take away uh, God's glory and to take his glory from him and in many ways draw it to himself. And this we have previously identified, haven't we? This this attack, this long war, we've identified it as the long war against God and history reveals and studies of the scriptures reveal the way in which Satan has conducted this war over the centuries. Satan's principal strategy in this, I think we briefly saw last time is to corrupt the heart, mind and soul of God's highest creation, that is man man who is created as a rational being a conscious being, a thinking being Satan brings this corruption through lies and deceit as we know and he appeals to men's pride he appeals to greed and he produced rebellion and disobedience in this rational thinking uh, human being. And so history and the scriptures, as I've just said, reveal that Satan has been relentless, absolutely relentless, in the implementation of this strategy. He pursues it with all the anger and venom in his own heart, with all the strength of purpose that he has. And the result of this has been, as we have seen tragically, that millions... Millions whose minds have been darkened by his deceit and, as the scriptures just told us, by their own lust, have lived this life and then left this life to go into an eternity of torment and suffering. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts encapsulated this in two verses of a hymn. He says, How sad our state by nature is, how our sin, how deep its stain, and Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But gloriously, what's of course, and new the full gospel, goes on to say, But there's a voice of sovereign grace, sounds from the sacred word, Come, you despairing sinners, come, and trust upon the Lord. And so as we come to consider the satan's devices to draw us into sin we have underlying all things don't we this glorious hope that there is a voice of sovereign grace that sounds from the word and calls upon despairing sinners to come and love and trust the lord you see almighty god has a greater strategy a strategy that is greater than satan's a strategy that will outwit Satan and overcome and indeed conquer all of Satan's strategies. God's strategy is a one that brings truth to dispel lies. It's a strategy that brings light to dispel darkness, and it brings gloriously, doesn't it, an atonement that brings reconciliation between God and rebellious sinners and rebellious sinners are justified by the substitutionary sacrifice of the sin however again such is the anger and the animosity and the venom of Satan against God that this war, these strategies continues for as long as men and women draw breath in this life I think in the last study I quoted some verses of Paul at the end of Romans chapter 7 where his conclusion on this continuing war in his own heart and mind is this So with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Perhaps the reality, perhaps the reality of the point that Paul is making here is is found perhaps in that chapter 6 of Ephesians where Paul speaks of the six key parts of the Christian armour. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Why speak of armour when there is no threat or danger of attack? We only put on armour when we're going either to war or to attack or even to defend ourselves. And what we see from the experience over the centuries, what we see writ large in the scripture, that that threat of attack by Satan is imminent. It's a daily event. And so it's important, isn't it, that uh, Christians daily uh, take up their Christian armour. Uh, we indeed focus upon our salvation. We focus on the sword of the Spirit. We focus on the righteousness of Christ. And it is this armour that takes us daily through our Christian lives. But before we get perhaps a little deeper into the study of Satan's attacks, we should perhaps examine the context in which today in our context we live work and worship today we might well ask the question and i'm sure it probably has been asked and answered in this place over the years the question is whatever happened to sin or perhaps expressed in another way whatever happened to the sinfulness of sin you see We have to acknowledge, don't we, the concept of sin as a serious moral and spiritual issue has been so diluted as to become totally relevant to today's society, isn't it? To modern society. It's true, isn't it? Where is sin? Even in Christians, we acknowledge the existence of sin, but does it have a reality? in our daily lives do we recognise that sin in our daily lives you see general society has been deceived into throwing away the spiritual and moral qualities and the standards which God gave and which were designed to produce a wholesome a moral and a just society instead of course society has been deceived into believing that in abandoning these God-given laws and standards, they're freeing themselves from the slavery and the bondage of an oppressive and an unjust God. The tragedy is, isn't it, and there's parents and there's grandparents, the tragedy is that we see a rising generation entering into an amoral society, A society which has no views either way on good or evil, but it only has views on what it can do to satisfy the desires of its own will. And this downgrade, of course, is not only an issue for the secular world. It has invaded the church. There have been compromises, haven't there? As we look around the churches, the established churches, other churches churches, where churchmen have rationalised and relaxed biblical teaching. And the reason for this is, as they say, well we have to make the church more relevant to modern society. And if modern society doesn't have any idea or ability to value and assess sin, well then we have to tailor our biblical teaching to respond to that society. And they do, they rationalise and they dilute the biblical teaching, the stark biblical teaching and thereby they feel that they can hopefully make the church attractive and draw people into the sin. Now, living in this environment, this culture poses many dangers uh, for us as Christians. You see, we can so easily absorb what is normal within the secular world. And we see this, this is what many Christians and what many churches have done. You see, we have, in many, many cases, completely lost the biblical imperative to live holy and sanctified lives. What was known clearly for generations as pious living. You only have to turn back to the Puritans to get real definition of what uh, pious living really was. But nowadays, of course, the term pious living is looked down upon and treated with a very great degree of derision. That style or principle of living is alien, isn't it? It's really alien to today's please-yourself-anything-goes society, isn't it? Anything goes culture. So long as we don't hurt other people, we can do or say or think what we please. Although that's been tempered a lot, hasn't it, by recent laws that have passed concerning hate speech and other issues. But generally, men live their lives by the rule that I can do what I want, providing it doesn't hurt others. But you see, today, pious living or living a sanctified life in, is, in many ways, the real counterculture, isn't it? We should live lives, and we should appear in many ways to the world around as aliens. Because our manner of life, our world view, our personal doctrine is so different from that accepted as the norm of by the world round. You see, sanctified living is the counterculture, and it is a positive good, both morally and spiritually. And, and in many ways, we can liken living in this sort of holy way, in this sanctified life, as walking through a minefield. You see, we know what the danger is in walking through a minefield. And so we need to be guided as to where the minds are and where the safe paths are. Now, I'm really grateful to Norman on Sunday evening. He spoke some words that uh, really started an interesting train of thought with me. I'm sure there are many other thoughts that people absorb from Norman's words Sunday evening. But in his message Sunday evening, he talked about, if you remember, Isaac reopening the wells that his father Abraham had done, dug and which the, Philippi, the Philistines had closed and plugged up. And he mentioned the comments, didn't he, of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones concerning how Christians should constantly draw resources from previously dug wells of Christian experience and teaching. So following the doctor's recommendation we're going back to the wisdom and thoughts of one Thomas Brooks a 17th century Puritan a writer, a pastor, a preacher he lived from 1608 to 1680 and particularly as I mentioned I think last time uh, the treatise or the book that he wrote Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices to help us in many ways, to navigate what I've described as the minefield, uh, to live in a sanctified life, in a sanctified society, in a society where truth, absolute truth, is denied. And to quote the last verse in the book of Judges, where everyone does what was right in his own eyes. If you remember, I don't probably not, but at the end right at the end of the last study I ident- I mentioned the fact that uh, Thomas Boston identified Satan's devices uh, to cause us to sin under four main groups. Devices intended to cause men to sin, devices intended to prevent spiritual and religious life and practice. Thirdly, Satan's devices designed to keep souls in a sad and doubting position and fourthly the devices to maintain a mastery over the hearts and minds of men and women so then let's as time is passing on let's look at the first of these devices that are designed to cause men to sin devices intended to cause men to sin the first, the first of these in Boston's own words is to present the bait and to hide the hook. Now any fisherman among us will immediately could never take to fishing whatsoever. Uh, many people I've come across spend hours and take immense delight, but for me it must be the most boring way to spend a day, but forgive me. <laughs> any fisherman among us will immediately understand the reality of this device, won't we? The bait which at one and the same time is designed to attract and to tempt the fish is also designed to hide the hook which will trap the fish. This is a wonderful illustration. The device of Satan is to open our minds to contemplate the pleasure and the profit that may be experienced by yielding to temptation and entering into sin. And yet, as he goes on to say, as much as it is designed to contemplate the pleasure and the profit, it's also designed to hide the misery and the torment that will certainly follow from the committing of that sin. This of course was the device Satan used right at the beginning of the Bible as he came to Adam and Eve and presented the truth of the fact that uh, as it says in the scriptures you shall surely not die for God doth know that in the days ye eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. Here uh, was the, if you like, the pleasure. Here was the benefit that they were to obtain, if they were to do, as Satan was tempting him, "Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." Here is the bait: "Ye shall become as gods." But he does not reveal to them, doesn't he? The loss, the shame, the misery that would certainly follow. You see, the promise here is couched as a benefit, a profit, but the real intention. The real intention was to bring them low in shame and misery and for them and all their succeeding generations, in the instant that they ate that fruit or took of that fruit, paradise was lost, wasn't it? Quote John Milton again. You see, Thomas Boston, in a paraphrase of uh, verses in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7, Thomas Brooks says this, Adversity has slain its thousands but prosperity it's tens of thousands you remember the women saluted David on his way back from the victory over Goliath and they said Saul has slain his thousands but David his tens of thousands here as I say Thomas Boston paraphrases it and he says adversity has slain its thousands certainly but prosperity has slain its tens of thousands here's a real warning isn't there that prosperity is dangerous. Now this device or this temptation can be used by Satan in all the major areas of our lives. You see, our careers, our finances, our prosperity, our property, our families, these can all be the means by which Satan can draw us into sin. This sin can often be pride, ambition, greed, position. But this sin is often wrapped up, isn't it, in reasonable and seemingly rational thinking, the ideas that come into our minds. And I think I commented last time that if Adam and Eve, who had come fresh from the hand of God, if they were deceived into the, by the cunning of Satan into believing they could do this, How important it is for us to be on our guard and to watch out for the roaring lion who comes most of the time as an angel of light or a wolf in sheep's clothing. So Thomas Boston sets out four fundamental remedies or ways in which we can avoid falling into this particular temptation. Just briefly, we ought to keep at the greatest distance from sin and from playing with the bait. Secondly, sin is but bittersweet. We must recognise this. Sin will usher in the greatest and saddest losses. And sin is very deceitful and bewitching. But just in passing, let let me briefly uh, mention a very important phrase in that Genesis account of the fall. In Genesis 3, verse 7, in the middle of that we read, Then the eyes of them both were opened. If you stop and think about it, this phrase, then the eyes of them both were opened, this phrase records that exact moment when innocence was lost and when sin entered the world. This is a phrase very much that is worthy of special consideration because so much of the message of the Bible that follows uh, in the scriptures flows from this little phase this little phrase you see in this in their context we see that their eyes were open and they acquired the knowledge of good and evil which they thought would be of great benefit to them but in contrast we today don't we in our situation we need our spiritual eyes opened to understand the way to avoid the evil and to do what is good In God's eyes. And so we have then in scripture a number of examples to illustrate this first point. To maintain a distance we ought to keep at the greatest distance from sin and from playing with the bait. And firstly, if you like, we have the positive response uh, to this particular uh, remedy. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 12, we read these words. But he left his garments... In her hand, and fled outside. Here, of course, is the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph, we are pleased to say, took the right course. He took the right course, and he fled from the temptation. At the other end of the scale, if you like, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, shows us, if you like, the negative response to this remedy. And we read there, don't we? Then David sent messages and took her and she came to him and she lay with him. As we have often remarked, um, scriptures are very open. They're very honest. They hide nothing and here laid bare is the sin of adultery in the heart of the king. But contrast the two. Joseph distanced himself from the temptation while well, David as it was uh, took the bait didn't he, gave in his mind was opened as he gazed on this beautiful woman his mind was opened to the possibilities that he could have her as his wife you see in both these instances the temptation was both physical and was obvious wasn't it but Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No, our wrestling, our temptations, they're spiritual. But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How important then it is for us to have our own spiritual antennae, if you like, fully tuned to the dangers and be ready to take evasive action when Satan tempts us to sin secondly to protect us from Satan's devices we are urged to remember uh, that sin is but bittersweet. I must confess as I read the book that Thomas Brooks brings so much scripture uh, to bear on his studies he takes us to Job chapter 20 verses 12 to 14 where he says It says, though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. And Brooke's comments on this particular verse are very colourful, very practical. He says, many long to be meddling with the murdering morsels of sin which do not nourish. Listen to this. Many eat that on earth which they digest in hell. He goes on, Adam's apple was bittersweet. Esau's mess of pottage was bittersweet. The Israelites' quails were bittersweet. Jonathan's honey are bittersweet and Adonijah's dainties are bittersweet. You see, after the meal is ended, then comes the reckoning. Men must not think to dance and dine with the devil and then to sup with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Too often, don't we? We convince ourselves that we can get away with these things because God is a forgiving God. The answer, of course, to that, Paul says, is not he? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. And so it is. We need to be so clearly aware of our situation, not only physically, but of heart and mind. Thirdly, we are to understand that sin will bring upon us the greatest and saddest losses that can ever fall upon our souls. Nowhere, of course, is this more clearly and forcefully illustrated than in the fall of Adam and Eve communion with God was broken although they enjoyed fellowship with him in the garden in the call cool of the day but that paradise was lost they were driven out of the garden joy was lost as well as the peace that passes understanding through sin we know don't we toil pain suffering were introduced into the world and Moses reflects on this isn't he in that Psalm 90 he says the days of our lives are 70 years and if by reason of strength they're 80 years yet their boast is but labour and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away sin will bring sorrow but there is encouragement in the scriptures as well isn't there also the writer to the Hebrews quotes from words from Pharaoh, Proverbs chapter 3 when he says in uh, Hebrews 12:6 for whom the lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives it may be that the difficulties and the suffering that come upon us are brought by God uh, to show us our sin and uh, to show us our need for repentance The prodigal son had to go through many painful experiences before he was brought back to the father who received him. Fourthly and finally then, we must seriously appreciate sin is nothing but deceitful in its very essence. Again, the Saviour clearly sets out this thought as a fundamental truth in the discussions recorded in John chapter 8 verse 43 says why do you not understand my words Jesus is discussing with the Jewish leaders with the Jewish people and he says why do you not understand my words because you are not able to listen to my words and then he goes on you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So it's right, isn't it? We must seriously understand, we must seriously appreciate that sin is nothing but deceitful in its very essence. Sin can so easily gain mastery over us. Because of its inherent deceit. How many alcoholics, how many drug addicts uh, will ignore warnings, time and time again, warnings about the dangers to their health of continuing in their alcoholism or in their drug addiction? And they persist, they persist, don't they, in their habits, even, even unto death such is the mastery of sin. It's such a sad thing to see people go down and down and down. And they will not give up their sin, though it costs them their lives. So what can we say in conclusion? The scriptures have revealed to us the attractive and the addictive nature of sin. And as much as Thomas Boston gives us real insights, into our attitude, into our approach to sin. And they're really helpful and they're really spiritual and they're really scriptural. And as much as we can do these things to avoid the attractions and the addictions of sin, there is, of course, only one remedy which is effective not only for this life, but for eternity. And that remedy is perhaps summed up in the words of our closing him, not the one that we're going to sing now, but they're closing him. And the first verse says this so clearly. It says, O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflict and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine I would be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. May this be our experience as we go forward into the world tomorrow, fully aware, fully cognizant, having our antenna out, if you like, looking at the circumstances and the situations into which we're entering and being given that, indeed, heavenly grace to flee from the sin that so easily besets us. Amen. Amen.